Take your Bible tonight and open to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. And let me read, uh, starting in verse uh, verse 1, uh, the first six verses. Romans 7, verse 1, Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? For the married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he is living, but if her husband dies, uh, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So if then, while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve newness, we serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Tonight we're continuing on here in our study, obviously in the book of Romans, and we have completed chapter 6, which at the end there is probably one of the most profound verses, I think, regarding the issue of salvation in the New Testament. It was a verse that really describes the condition of every man in the entire universe, either living or uh, now or in, in the past departed, as the Bible teaches very clearly that every man is either in the process of receiving or already has received uh, the wages uh, which is due sin, which is death, uh, eternal death, and a literal place of eternal conscious torment. Or uh, a man is, in the, is the recipient of divine mercy and grace. That's what verse 23 says uh, back in chapter 6. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So either, uh, or every person either gets what he deserves, uh, what has been earned by his own actions, which is eternal death, or a person can get what they do not deserve, which is eternal life. Because God himself offers again me uh, freely uh, to all men who would believe eternal life. And again, it's a free gift of God's grace, and the only way that that free gift can uh, come to you, that free gift of life, is through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and through him alone. Eternal death, the scripture says, is earned. The wages of sin is death. But eternal life comes as a free gift. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Now we come to chapter 7, <clears throat> after uh, finishing that uh, triumphal verse there at the end of that chapter. And uh, chapter 7 is probably one of the best known uh, chapters in the Bible. Romans 7 is uh, just packed with theological truths, as all of uh, Paul's writings are. So there's a lot here for us uh, to consider. Um, one uh, pastor I was reading this last week said he was hoping that Christ would return before he had to deal with Romans chapter 7 which I thought was funny, but that's, uh, the chapter will not be that traumatic, I guarantee you. Uh, the chapter has been a uh, focal point of a tremendous amount of controversy, mostly because of what goes on at the end of the chapter from verse 14 forward, where Paul writes down his own struggle with sin. And, and people like to get all bogged down in that portion of Scripture, trying to understand what Paul is saying in that section. Is he speaking as an unregenerate man or a regenerate man? Is he describing himself as who he used to be before conversion or after his conversion? But that's not the primary point of the chapter, the primary theme of the chapter. And to get bogged down in that issue, I think, would not be helpful in trying to understand exactly why uh, Romans chapter 7 was written in, in the first place. And if we fail to understand exactly what Paul is trying to write, then we kind of miss uh, uh, the point for studying the chapter and we miss what his desire was for to understand uh, through the chapter. So when we get to the end there, we'll figure that all out, Romans 7, 14 through 25. It's an important section of Scripture, obviously, uh, but it's not the entire focus of the chapter. Now, before we start looking at chapter 7 uh, in uh, uh, total here, uh, I want us to remember the context. I, I, I've told you a couple times through the study in, in Romans that 6 and 7 are really a parenthetical thought of a larger section that starts in chapter 5 and then runs through chapter 8. Romans chapter 5 begins like this. 
Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8 ends with that triumphal cry that says, Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So 6 and 7, Romans 6 and 7, were really written, again, as a parenthetical thought, uh, to clarify some important issues. One would be the function of grace, and, and then law, uh, an understanding of, of law in the context of teaching justification by grace. You might remember back in chapter 5, there was a great statement the apostle made at the end of that chapter. In chapter 5, verse 20 says, The law came in so that transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Verse 21, So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the apostle realizes that there are people going to be in opposition to his teaching of justification by faith alone and Christ alone, and he realizes that there's going to be two main charges against his teaching. The first charge would be uh, antinomianism, and that he is promoting antinomianism by his teaching. And antinomianism basically says, if you're teaching free grace, right, if salvation is by free grace, then you might as well sin as much as you want because grace is going to cover it. Grace is going to take care of it. So chapter 6 deals in part with that issue. It deals with the issue of sin. So sin really is the issue in chapter 6. Paul uses the word sin 17 times in that chapter. He says that every man born in this world is a slave of sin and unrighteousness. And all that he can produce in himself is a life of sin, a life of shame, a life of fruitlessness, and a life that leads to death. But by an act of God's regenerating grace, a man can become a slave of righteousness and a slave of Christ. Because by God's grace, he can be freed from sin and enslaved to God, therefore producing a different life, a new life, a life of fruitfulness, a life that results in sanctification or his continual separation from sin. And again, the outcome of that transformation is eternal life. So to address the issue of antinomianism, again, the charge that free grace results in further sin, Paul says, look, that's ridiculous, right? May it never be. Paul says the result of abounding grace is not more sin, but the result of abounding grace is actually more righteousness. Chapter 5, verse 21. So then, as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Right? Tremendous truth. Grace doesn't produce more sin. Grace produces righteousness. Then in chapter 6, verse 14, he says, For sin shall not be master over you, for you're not under law, but under grace. So again, here at the end, uh, to the, from chapter 6, verse 14, to the end of that chapter, uh, the apostle Paul is really showing the design of grace. Right? Grace is going to produce holiness. The end result of grace, the end result of God granting to us eternal life freely, apart from anything that we've done, is he is going to produce for himself a people who are holy, blameless, and beyond reproach to the praise of his glory. Right? That's what grace does. Now, the apostle has to deal with the second issue. The second area of a misunderstanding of, of teaching salvation by grace alone, faith alone, right? Justification by faith. doesn't produce more sin. It produces righteousness. The second misunderstanding is the function of the law in the life of the believer. Right? In the light of justification by faith alone and Christ alone, what is the function of the law in the life of the believer? Does that teaching, justification by faith only, render the law of no value or render the law useless? Right? That's the issue in chapter 7. It has to do with the law. If you come and look at Romans chapter 7, you would see that the word law is used 20 times in chapter 7, four times in the first four verses of uh, chapter 8. In addition, the word commandment is used six times in Romans chapter 7. Uh, Paul referring to one of the Ten Commandments, which are the foundation of God's law. So therefore, the word commandment is basically a synonym for the law. right? The authoritative commands from God, not suggestions, but, but commands that must be obeyed. And then there's also the use of the word principle that is used in chapter 7 that comes from the same Greek word that we would translate into law. So if you would add it all together... The word law, commandment, principle is used 32 times in Romans 7 through 8, 4, right? So what is the theme of Romans chapter 7? Okay, I'll give you a moment to think about it, okay? It has to do with the law, right? 
specifically the central theme is the believer's relationship to the law salvation by grace alone is going to produce more sin no he says it's ridiculous may never be it's going to produce holy people now what about the law what's the the believer's relationship to the law now if you're looking in the old testament you'd see the law obviously a a major uh, focus there the law given directly by god to moses uh, to the nation of israel it uh, is recorded in the books of exodus leviticus deuteronomy it is the legal code from uh, god and he can divide it up into three sections if you want first you have the moral law and the moral law is basically how to live a godly life how to pursue a life of personal holiness it's rooted and grounded in the ten commandments nine of the ten commandments are reinforced in the new testament the only one that is different has to do with the sabbath so the moral code reveals to us the heart of god god's moral will again it's a road map to personal holiness it's a it's a road map to how to live a life that honors god again nine out of the ten are reaffirmed in the new testament so the new testament makes it very clear that children for example are still to obey their parents as it says in ephesians 6 right according to the law issued by uh, god to, to moses back in exodus 20 uh, they're still called to honor uh, children are still called to honor their fathers uh, believers must tell the truth under the new covenant uh, again we're not to steal we're not to covenant uh, romans uh, 13 8 through 10 paul says that we're to love one another uh, the new testament believers should have no other gods before the almighty god we must not take the lord's name in vain we must not take something or add something to our worship like a visual aid like no idols right so to suggest that the moral commands of uh, god are still not in effect or uh, uh, is an incorrect statement the moral law is still in effect it's still binding upon the, the people of god it, with the exception again of the sabbath rest because i think that was fulfilled in the death of the person of christ we should we rest sure we should rest should we worship publicly most certainly right we should publicly worship with god's people but there are no ceremonial limitations or restrictions uh, on the sabbath kind of an idea of worship because christ has fulfilled all those requirements so first you have the moral law then you have the ceremonial law the ceremonial law is the sacrificial system made up of the high priest the priest sacrifices offering day of atonement uh, scapegoat etc and so forth again the ceremonial law was fulfilled in the life of death of the lord jesus christ he comes and he abolishes that law he abolishes the ceremonial law listen you might have noticed around here that we do not lay a sacrifice on the altar and slit its throat we don't sprinkle blood on the mercy seat one we don't have a sacrifice two uh, you know an animal too we don't have an altar and we don't have a mercy seat we don't do that why is that because jesus is our high priest and jesus is not only our high priest jesus is our sacrificial lamb he's the one who came and offered himself as the ultimate sacrifice on the cross to make atonement for sins so that whole system has been set aside because of the person of christ you have the moral law you have the ceremonial law then you have the civil law right the civil law given to moses who did moses represent he happened to represent the nation of Israel, right? And the civil law given to, uh, uh, through God uh, to Moses, to the nation of Israel, told them how to function as a theocracy, as a society and, and a theocracy in the promised land. Uh, number one, we're not Israel. We're not Israel. So the civil law is not binding upon New Testament believers. And we don't live in a theocracy. However, the principles found in the civil law make up a great part of uh, our western system of jurisprudence for example the death penalty given in the, in the moral in the in the uh, ceremonial law the death penalty should be still in effect because <coughs> excuse me the bible teaches if you take someone's life then romans 13 says your life should be taken by the by the state by the sword because uh, the state has that uh, ability by god to avenge the death uh, of that person take the life of the wrongdoer so capital punishment still lies in the hands of civil government so the principles of civil law are, are still helpful so there, there's the three aspects of the law as you look in the old testament and, and the jews obviously regarded god's law very highly in fact they actually went to the point where they made an idol out of the law uh, so much so that there were people who worshiped the law over worshiping the god who gave the law who wrote the law uh, and, and that's what it's like in the time of jesus here in the new testament that's what it's like in the time when the apostle writes the book of romans the jews had elevated the law very highly and had a very sacred view of the law but unfortunately the jews had developed a theology that said that a man can make themselves right before god by exercising or fulfilling the law keeping the law because they thought it was so sacred 
So again, culturally, amongst the Jews, the, the law is high and lifted up. It was the dominant uh, uh, commitment that people made in their life, the nation, nation of Israel, to keep the law. In fact, you might remember Paul, when he looks back in his former life in the book of Philippians, and his relationship uh, to the law before he came to Christ, he says, Philippians 3, 4, Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else had mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more, circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, the Hebrew of Hebrew, Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to the zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, that which is in the law found blameless. Right? So he had a very high view of the law, and he was going to, he thought he was going to be able to stand righteous before God, right? As to the righteousness found of the law, man, I got it. Right? That's before he came to Christ. So again, the Jews uh, very, held very highly to the law of God, and, uh, to the law of God, and rightly we should. Uh, the law should be respected. It should be honored. It shouldn't be dismissed. I mean, Paul himself in Romans 7, 12 says the law is holy. The commandment is holy, just, and good. But again, the question on the table is what is the relationship uh, of the New Testament believer to the law of God in light of the fact that justification is by faith alone? That's the issue. Now, in the church today, there are probably two extremes that Christians fall into, two errors that people fall into uh, regarding the law. The first extreme is legalism, and then the second extreme is antinomianism. So legalism says you have to keep the law in order to be saved, right? Which, of course, we understand is unbiblical. Legalism says you have to keep the law to be saved. Legalism says you have to keep the ceremonial law or the civil law in order to be sanctified, which, again, is unbiblical. Legalism probably displays itself most often in the modern Christian church by adding to the commandments of God. By adding to the commandments of God, people's traditions, people's preferences, and they take those principles or those... those uh, traditions, those preferences, and they elevate them to the level of God's commandment. For example, what you wear, how you dress, how you keep your hair, because we know that Jesus likes his sheep cut pretty tight, right? Legalists make a law where there's no law, right? Legalists make a law where there's no law or where there's no biblical text to sustain their claim. But many people hold that if you don't keep these man-made rules, and more specifically, is it's if you don't live personally the way they think you should live, then you're not a good Christian, and more than likely you're not saved. That's legalism, even though it has no biblical support. Right? Legalists add to the law. The legalist makes his standard the standard of righteousness and holiness. Now, the other extreme is antinomianism. Again, anti, the prefix anti means against or opposition to. Nomos in the Greek means law. So a person who's an antinomian means a person is against the law. They are on the other side. From legalism, they're on the other side of the theological spectrum away from the legalist. So the antinomian believes that they have free license to live however they want. He's against the moral law. To the one who's an antinomian, if you ever say you must obey God... Those people would go like that, man, they'd, they'd be coming at you in a heartbeat, right? They'd rise up against you and say, you're a legalist. You're adding to the word of God. They're the kind of people who promote the so-called idea of the carnal Christian, that you can claim to be a follower of Christ, yet live your life any way you want to live. Jesus is your Savior. He's not your Lord. But, of course, that true is, is not a biblical position. It's nonsense. You can't say, since I'm free... Since I'm saved by grace alone through Christ alone, by, faith, by grace alone through faith alone, and Christ in Christ alone, since I'm saved by grace, it's okay for me to be an adulterer. I mean, Christ covered my sin, right? What's the problem? That's antinomianism. That's, that's ludicrous. You can't say, because I'm free in Christ, I'm saved by grace, I don't need to obey the Lord. Right? My obedience is not the issue, so I don't need to obey Him, right? That's also a ludicrous statement. So obviously, between legalism and antinomianism, we need to be somewhere in the middle. Right? Those extremes aren't helpful. The law isn't going to save us. We should really honor God's moral law in our, uh, front with our obedience from the heart. But at the same time, we have to realize that we can't do that. We can't keep God's law from the flesh. We can't keep the law by our own effort. We can't obey the law of God through the power. We can only obey uh, the, the law, the moral law, uh, by the power of the person and the indwelling, uh, indwelling person of the Holy Spirit. Remember back in Ezekiel uh, 36, 26, 27, at the new birth, right, the new covenant. God says, look, I'm going to take out this heart of stone, and I'm going to put in a heart of flesh, and I'm going to write my law upon your heart, and then I'm going to put within you my spirit. 
right? And if I put my spirit within you, that's going to enable you to walk in obedience to his statutes, right? Because now you have a new heart. It's a new heart that God gives you. You want to obey. You want to follow God's law, right? Now, obviously, we have a conflict with our heart that is uh, regenerated and wants to obey, and our flesh that always wants to do the wrong thing, right? It wants to do sinful things. Again, that's uh, Romans at the end of the chapter, right? That's 14 through 25. We struggle on a, on a spiritual level. There's a spiritual war that's always going on inside us to walk in obedience, right, to the, to the moral law. Now, Paul's already said a whole lot here uh, in the book of Romans to this uh, issue of the law, so it's not a really a new subject for us to consider. But before we move forward, let's go back and just kind of think a little bit uh, on what he's already said about the law. The first thing Paul pointed out in his teaching was the fact, listen, the law was never given as a way to justify anybody. Right? So if you think you're going to justify yourself before you God, before God, by keeping the law, you don't understand why the law was given. The law was never given as a way to justify. That was completely opposite to what the Jewish believers understood. The Jewish people thought about the law. Again, they believed it was the one way that a person could be justified by, by observing the law. Turn, turn back, uh, put a little mark there, but turn back to uh, um, uh, Romans 3. Look at Romans 3, verse 19. Paul says, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Verse 20, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Right? Every unredeemed human being is under the law. Right? The Jews received the law through Moses back in 3.2. Excuse me, every Gentile has the law of God written on his heart, says back in Genesis, or back in... uh, Romans 2.15. And he says that every mouth, right, everyone's under the law, everyone's under the law, uh, Jews and Gentiles, so that every mouth may be closed and the whole world may become accountable to God. So again, Jews, Gentiles, doesn't matter. The whole world's guilty before God. The whole world's accountable. The law comes and tells you what to do. But the law in no way enables you to do the right thing. Tells you what to do, but it doesn't enable you to do the right thing. Therefore, by the works of the law, Paul says, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Why? Because nobody perfectly keeps the law. It's impossible. Right? So the law was never given as a way to justify anyone. The world, Paul says, all the world may become accountable to God. So the world is under the law of God. The world is actually cursed by their inability to perfectly obey. Galatians 3 and 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For as it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. So if you want to have standing before God and you think you can do it before God to be perfect or to stand before him, then you have to be perfect, right? If you're counting on your effort, your ability, you have to be perfect. Okay? How many laws do you have to break to make you a lawbreaker? Answer is one. Okay? Just one. How many times do you have to lie to be a liar? Just one. How many times do you have to steal to be a thief? Just one. Right? Every, every, right? So, so if you want a, your own effort to make you to have right standing before God, you have to be perfect because God is perfect. And the reality is no one's perfect. As many are under the works of the law are under a curse. Cursed, as it is written, curses everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. You have to be perfect. You can't be perfect. Right? So again, the law was never given to justify anyone. Second thing that Paul has already said about the law is over in Romans 5, if you want to look over there real quick, in that section from uh, 12 to verse 19. And Paul shows us that, listen, the law was not even needed to condemn us because we're already guilty in Adam. We're already guilty in original sin because of our union with Adam. Look at verse 19, Romans 5, 19. As through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So the law doesn't save us. The law isn't even necessary to condemn us. So what's the purpose of the law? Verse 20, chapter 5, verse 20. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. Or the law was added so that the transgression would increase. Really, I think it's the law came in or entered in alongside of 
so that the transgression should would increase. So the question is alongside of what? Well, alongside of sin, right? Sin was already present in the world, and the law came in or entered in alongside of sin so that the transgression would increase. You go, what in the world does that mean? It means that, uh, as James Boyce points out, it means that the law somehow brought out the true nature and the magnitude of sin so that it could be seen for what it truly is. Chapter 3, verse 20 says, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. 5, verse 20 says, the law was added so that transgression would increase. So how does the law increase sin? Uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones has a very uh, helpful uh, outline here. He does a great treatment of the subject, and we're going to kind of bar his outline along the way. But Paul says in, how does the law increase sin? Paul says in 7, 7 of Romans, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. I would not have come to know about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. Right? So did the law make Paul covetous? No, the answer is no, he's already that way. What the law did is it comes alongside of his sin, and the law actually exposed him for who he was. Right? The, through the law comes the knowledge of sin, again, 320. So how specifically does the law increase our knowledge of sin? Uh, again, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, number one, he says it defines sin. Right? The, sin come, the, the law comes along, it's added to Alongside of sin, so that transgression increased. What does it do? It increases our knowledge of sin by defining sin. So, so the seeds of sin are present in us. And the written law of God exposes those seeds of sin and rebellion. Or, or you might say that the law turns sin into actual rebellion. Right? When, when uh, uh, right and wrong have been clearly defined and disobeyed. For example, the law says, stay off the grass. You say, who in the world are you to me? Who in the world are you to tell me to stay off the grass, right? To tell me what I can do. The law says, don't touch wet paint. We go like that, right? The law turns sin into actual rebellion. The seeds of rebellion are already present in us, but the law turns sin into rebellion, and the written law exposes that seed of rebellion, right? That, that sin and that rebellion. The law, what does the law do? It defines sin. Number two, it reveals sin's nature. It reveals sin's nature. The true essence of sin. What's the true essence of sin? It's rebellion against God. Right? It's rebellion against God. Now, there's a sense, I think, when we don't understand fully the fact, that fact until we're presented specifically with the law pertaining to our rebellion. But every man has been given a sense by God of right and wrong. It's called the conscience. Romans 2.15. They show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternating accusing them or defending them. Right, so even if a man doesn't have a Bible, every man has within himself an innate sense of right and wrong. There's no society on the planet that condones murder. And even without a specific written code, the, mur the murderer knows in his heart that he has, in has violated an innate moral code. Right? So the law of God comes and specifically defines the charge and directs the sinner back to the one, uh, back to the very God who has given him uh, that sense of uh, right and wrong. Uh, David, when he sinned against uh, Uriah and murdered him, committed adultery with his wife, David confessed what? Against thee and thee only, right? Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Right? David understood the law. He understood the violation of the law while he did violate those other people, Uriah and Bathsheba. His violation was against God himself. So it sends him back to the one who gave him the truth, who gave him a conscience. Number three, the law exposes sin's power and sin's grip upon the human heart. Right? Sin, the, the law exposes sin's power and sin's grip upon the human heart. Now, sin has gripped mankind's heart so much and such an extent that it has twisted and perverted our entire being, our entire nature. We are born into this world, and born into this world, every man is a slave of sin. Every man born in this world, a slave of sin, does those things they should not do, those things we ought not do. Romans 6, 12, we allow sin to reign in our mortal bodies, to obey its lust. Verse 13, we present the members of our bodies to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. So the law exposes sin's power in sin's grip on the human heart. Number four, the law unveils sin's deceit. 
the law unveils sin's deceit. So, until the law came and directly exposed our conduct, we excused, we, we excused ourselves. And we denied that our conduct was sinful. We called it something else. We do it all the time. It was a mistake. Uh, it was an indiscretion. Right? We try to fool ourselves into thinking that our sin is not sin, and our sin is really not as bad as it is in reality. Romans 7.11 says, For sin taking an opportunity through the commandment deceived me, and through it killed me. Right? No man knows the deceitfulness of sin in the fullest until the law comes in and teaches him just how sin has so adversely affected him. Right? And not only does the law bring about the knowledge of sin by defining it, not only does it expose its sin, uh, its power, and its true deceitful nature, the law comes in and convicts us of sin, condemns us, and reveals our sin for what it is, and it's nothing more than an outright offense against God. So it's not just a violation of a moral code. Sin is rebellion against the person of God himself. Sin is rebellion uh, against the Most High God. Rebellion against the one who has loved us, rebellion against the one who has given us all good things, rebellion against our Creator, whom we have been made to serve and to glorify Him. And sin is rebellion against Him. Well, there you go, right there, somebody says, you know, look how great the law is, man. The law does all these wonderful things. And Paul, I don't know what this Paul guy, he's always on some kind of negative thing, you know, it's always derogatory, derogatory towards the law. How can such a great thing be set aside, right? A great gift. How can Paul say the law was added? How can Paul say we're not under the law but under grace? How can you teach justification by faith alone? What does it do with regard to the law, right? And so the whole point of chapter 7 of the book of Romans is to come and address the objectors uh, with uh, regards to justification by faith alone and lay out the law's proper role in the life of the believer. What is the believer's relationship to the law? Now again, Paul has already taught that justification is absolutely impossible by the law. And what 7 does, Romans 7 says, is sanctification is impossible also by keeping the law. Right? Justification, our standing before God, is impossible. You can't earn your way before God by keeping the law. Sanctification, progressive holiness, progressively looking more and more like Christ. Guess what? Keeping the law is not going to work that way. Not, not going to work that way either, right? In fact, in chapter seven, he's going to say that uh, that the law is a hindrance to sanctification. The law is a hindrance; it's an obstacle to sanctification, right? So that's the purpose of chapter seven: the sinner or the the, the believer's relationship to the law. And he's going to prove that again, sanctification, even uh, trying to keep the law, is a hindrance to our sanctification, right? You go on. No, it's okay. It is, yeah, it's right. Trust me, it's right. What's the law? What does the law do for the believer? That's the question. Now, if you took a bird's eye view at chapter 7, it divides up very well into three sections. First six verses define for us our relationship to the law as believers. Verses 7 through 13 show the purpose of the law as it rightly shows the um, as the law rightly does its job, its job and produces a conviction of sin in us. That section, verses through, 7 through 13, really is the vindication of the law, if you will. Shows how the law exposes our sin, shows our lack of fruitfulness unto God, has nothing to do with God. It has, our, our, that our lack of fruitfulness has nothing to do with the, with the law, but has everything to do with us and our utter sinfulness, so it's going to expose us. And then the last section, 14 through 25, is the practical or the experimental working out uh, of the first two statements, right? And that's where Paul Paul's going to show the position. Uh, if we're left under the law, right, the utter impossibility of our condition, how bad our condition would be if we're left under the law, right? And basically, he's going to point us to our only hope, our only help, that being the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Now look at look at five verse ten. Now I'm going to give you a quote. Look at five verse ten. It says, if while we are enemies, we are reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, listen, we shall be saved by his life. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, the whole business of chapter 7, Romans chapter 7, is to repeat and to reapply what Paul has said grandly 
in chapter 5, verse 10, which is, if we were enemies, if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Saved completely, he says. Saved entirely. Fully sanctified and perfectly glorified. How? In the life of Jesus Christ. It is the only way. Nothing else can do it, he says. The apostle repeats it here in chapter 7, verses 24 and 25. He says, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Verse 25, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on one hand I myself... Uh, on one hand I myself with my mind am serving the law of God but on the other hand my flesh the law of sin what's the purpose of chapter 7 to point us to Christ can you stand justified by God, before God by keeping the law answer no can you live the Christian life by keeping the law no can you get more holy by keeping the law no the only way that you can live the Christian life the only way that you can stand before God justified is by the person of the Lord Jesus Christ the only way that you can live the Christian life, listen, is by the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is the, per, the believer's position to the law? Okay? The believer's position to the law is he better get as close as he can to the person of Jesus Christ. Right? I'll give you the end up front. That's the answer. Right? So that's the overview. That's kind of the general purpose. Let's just kind of quickly dive into the first four verses. Right? Now, along the way, as we're going over to chapter 7, we're going to the first four verses. I want you to be reminded, you can look back just the other pa the page across the way there, but chapter 6, verse 14. Right? The apostle had already explained, for sin shall not be master over you. He says, for you are not under law. Right? For the believer, the law has lost its power to condemn. You are not under law, but every believer is under grace. That's the position of every New Testament believer under grace. So Paul is going to teach that in order to be freed from the law, there has to be a death. In order to be freed from the law, there has to be a death. And if that death occurs, then we're free. If that death occurs, we're free, and then we are going to be united to another person. And again, specifically, that person is the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is our only hope. Right? So here in chapter 7, verse 1, Paul's going to begin with an axiom, a self-evident truth, a general principle, a truism, a fundamental principle in life that is commonly understood by all people. And again, he's going to address the first error of the legalist who tries to be sanctified by keeping the law in his own willpower apart from the person of the Holy Spirit. So Romans 7, 1. It says, Do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. Do you not know? It's a rhetorical question. And the answer is yes, everybody knows this, right? Do you not know brethren, right? Speaking about believers or two believers, people who are saved. And then, and then it says, for I am speaking to those who know law. There really is, in the Greek, there's no definite article. So he's not talking about the law as in the Mosaic law. He's just talking about law. You know, we live in a society full of of laws. Do you not understand law? Right? He, he's saying that the law has jurisdiction over a person's life as long as he lives. And we go, well, yeah, I got that. That's easy to understand. Do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as he lives. We understand that we live in a country, therefore we're all bound by the laws of this country. As long as we live. We're all bound by the laws of this country as long as we live. If, here we go, if we're dead, then obviously the law has no jurisdiction over us. Correct? Is that, am I going too fast? Right? We're freed from the laws of that country. That's a self-evident truth. That's an axiomatic truth. That's verse 1. Next thing Paul is going to do is he's going to give an analogy. He's going to give an illustration like he did last chapter about sin and slavery, which was common in the, in, in the culture. It's an illustration common to everyday life. That illustration is going to explain the axiom. That's verses 2 and 3. And listen, that's all verses 2 and 3 are. They are just an illustration. Now, one of the par problems with Romans chapter 7 is commentators get so convoluted, they, they muddle up this whole section, and they turn it into some kind of allegory. 
attempting to turn this passage into something more than it actually says, and ascribing specific meanings to each of the points of the uh, parts of the illustration. But if you just keep it very simple, very straightforward, you avoid interpretive errors. The illustration is simple. The death of a husband releases the wife from the law that bound her to the marriage contract. That's the illustration. That's it. The death of a husband releases the wife from the law that bound her to the marriage. Right? Again, that's it. Period. End of illustration. Don't take it any further. Verse 2. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. Verse 3. So then if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called to an adult she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is freed from the law. So she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Right? As long as you are alive, law has jurisdiction over you. In the case of, uh, for example, marriage. But death ends that relationship. The death of the husband releases the wife from the law that bound her to the marriage relationship. Now look, in verses 2 and 3, Paul's not teaching on marriage. He's just giving an illustration. He's giving an analogy to bring a clear picture of the axiom. The married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he is living. If her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. Verse 3, if the husband dies, she is free from the law, so she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. So again, Paul's not talking about marriage and divorce. Guess what he's talking about in chapter 7? He's actually talking about sanctification. That's what he's talking about. So he's going to give an application here. What's the believer's relationship to the law? The answer is the law only has jurisdiction over you if you are alive. Verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. What's the relationship? What's the believer's relationship to the law? You were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who is raised from the dead. Who's him who is raised from the dead? Jesus Christ. <clears throat> What's the, the wife's relationship to the husband? If her husband is alive, she's joined to another man. She's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. So she's not an adulteress although she is joined to another man. So verse 4 is really a profound statement. And it's bringing clarity and understanding to what the New Testament believers' relationship is to the law. And because it's a profound statement, it's going to take us a little bit of time to get through it. Right? It is really a summary of the entire position of the Christian. It is a declaration of what it means to be a Christian. And it shows the character of those who belong to Christ. And in verse 4, there are actually four truths that define what it means to be a Christian. Four truths. Truth number one is the first thing the Apostle Paul tells us here in this verse is that being a Christian means you have an entirely new life. You have an entirely new life. And he puts it in that verse in terms of death and rising from the dead. Right? Death and rising from the dead. You have a new life. You were made to die so that you might be joined to another to him who is raised from the dead. Made to die in order to be raised. So again, therefore, my brethren, you, again, he's speaking to believers, not unbelievers, fellow Christians, and he's talking to them about the matter of their spiritual growth. You were made to die. Made to die is an aorist passive verb. And it means that at a point in time, at a point in time, those who are Christians have experienced a complete and final death to the law. You are made to die to the law. It's a passive verb that indicates the believer didn't die this death themselves. They didn't put themselves to death. They were made to die. They were made to die by a divine act of God. Now again, when did that happen? The answer is at conversion. When we were justified by faith alone in the person of Jesus Christ alone. So Paul's looking back <clears throat> to that specific moment when we were justified, that specific moment in time when we were slaves of sin and that moment we repented and believed and then we became slaves of righteousness. 
Right? And he's saying, look, at that moment of conversion is nothing that you did. It's nothing that brought on this change in this relationship to the law. At that moment, you were made to die to the law. Again, this is something that the grace of God does in our life. God made us die to the law. Now, if you've been paying attention to me at all, we've been talking about this for a long time, chapter 6. A repeated theme. Right? Numerous times. Paul says, what is the relationship to sin for the believer? And he says, i got to remind you that you died. You died. In Christ, you died. Romans 6, 2. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Verse 3. Don't you know that all of us who have been baptized in Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? And remember I told you it's a dry verse. He's not talking about water. He's talking about identifying with Christ. You've been immersed into Christ. Like you go into the water and you get changed from dryness to wetness. You go into Christ, you get transformed from death to life. You've been identified with the, with the Savior. Verse 4. We've been buried with him in baptism into death. Therefore, as Christ was raised from the dead, the glory of Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Verse 5, we become united with him in the likeness of his death. Certainly we should be like the newness of his resurrection. Verse 6, our old self, our old man, who used to be apart from Christ, was crucified, killed, murdered, put to death. You've got to understand who you are. Start living out the reality of who you are. Knowing that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, that we'd be no longer slaves to sin. Verse 7, he has died freed from sin. Verse 8, we have died with Christ. We, I believe that we're going to live with him. Verse 9 says Christ was raised from the dead, never to die again. And because we're united with him, the same thing is going to be true to us. Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death is no longer master over him. Verse 10, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. The life he lives, he lives to God. Therefore, or even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. Guess what? The old person who he used to be is dead in Christ. You've got to have a death. You've got to have a death to free you from the, from the law, right? So being a Christian means that you now live an entirely new life. A Christian is somebody who was once dead, but now has been risen from the dead. Again, verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead. So again, being a Christian means you have an entirely new life entirely new life. It's exactly what Paul says all throughout the New Testament. Ephesians 2.1, you are dead in your trespasses and sins, but God being rich in mercy, right? He made us alive together with Christ. My grace has been uh, uh, saved, raised up with Christ, seated with him at the heavenly places. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.14, the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live from themselves, but for him who rose again on their behalf. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, is a new creature. Old things pass away. New things have come. A Christian means you have an entirely new life. Second, uh, or Colossians 2.12, having been buried with him in baptism, which you're also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and uncircumcision of flesh, he made your life together with him, having forgiven your transgressions. I mean, I could go on and on. Colossians 3.1 says the same thing. Verse 3 of that chapter, you've died, your life is hidden with Christ. Galatians 2 and 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Being a Christian means you have an entirely new life. You went from being dead in trespasses and sins, you went from being slaves to sin, to being slaves of righteousness. You went to being dead to life, Right? And now you've been given life. You've been joined to the one who is the victor over death, the one who is raised from the dead. You were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to one another, to him who is raised from the dead. If you get nothing else out of that verse, you just keep looking at who that verse is talking about. Not what that, law, that verse is talking about primarily, but who that verse is talking about. It's talking about Christ. Christ is the answer. I think I told you that's the answer to the question. If I ask you a question, just answer with Jesus Christ is the answer to my life. Right? You'll get that one. You'll get it right. How, do you, how are you justified by Jesus Christ? How do you live the holy life by Jesus Christ? You're not doing anything to make yourself good. You're not making yourself to make holy. You're not doing anything of yourself to get yourself closer to, to God. You can't do that. Only Jesus Christ can. Jesus Christ is the answer. Now listen, Jesus, or Paul was not the only person uh, who talked about the Christian life in this kind of... Uh, uh, difference of being fundamentally different from a non-Christian, right? That the Christian has a new life, an entirely 
new life. A Christian is somebody who's undergone a profound change. That's exactly, if you remember this morning, I was talking about Nicodemus in John chapter 3. That's exactly what Christ told Nicodemus. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. Right? Nicodemus, look, I got it. You know everything, but your nature as a fallen human being is so corrupt, you have to be born again. You need a new life. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I say you must be born again. You need a new life. Peter said the same thing. Right, Peter, first uh, Peter one twenty three. You have been born again, not of a seed that is a perishable, but imperishable, that is through the living and enduring word of God. You need a new life. God provides that new life through Christ. Now there's kind of a modern thinking because we want to get along, we want everybody to like us. There's kind of a modern thinking that goes, well, you know, the Christians, just like everybody else in the world, in fact, we're gonna come right alongside you so we show you that we're like everybody else and that we're gonna become one of you so we can win you. That's a poor philosophy. I guarantee you all you gotta do again. As I said this morning, look back to the philosophy of Jesus. He never used that. He may have um, uh, walked with sinners, but it was for the purpose of um, um, uh, pointing them to salvation, the fact that he was their only hope. It wasn't to sit down and have a beer with them. There's actually a a quote-unquote church in our neighborhood, I guess you could say, that that's how they they, uh, uh, market themselves. You know, you want to know more about uh, Jesus? Actually, on one of their flyers, I kid you not, on one of their flyers, I, I read it. You know, you want to know how to how how to walk with Jesus? Well, come and talk to our pastor if they're just like you. In fact, we'll sit down and have a beer with you to um, talk about how real we are and how much we're just like you. Okay, you think I'm joking? Right? Am I joking? My wife's probably going, "No, my wife." I'm telling, she's read it too. Right? That's the modern philosophy. There's nothing different between the Christian and non-Christian. You know what? That is completely unbiblical. The Christian has a new life. Right? It's not just a religion thing. Right? The Christian has an entirely brand new life. There's nothing so fundamentally different, foundationally different than a Christian from a non-Christian. Because a Christian is not someone who just got cleaned up on the outside. It's not just somebody who's gone through some kind of behavior modification. A Christian is radically different from a non-Christian. Because the non-Christian is in the process of receiving justice for his or her life. The wages of sin is death, right? Physical and eternal. The Christian, on the other hand, is the person who is the recipient of divine mercy and transforming grace. The old him has died, and now he's been joined to another who has conquered both sin and death. You could not have a more fundamental, radical difference than a non-Christian and a Christian. Therefore, because the Christian is now united with him who raised from the dead... The Christian has passed through the realm of death. What does the psalmist say? As I pass through the valley of the shadow of death. It's a shadow. It's not a reality for the believer. Right? Because of our union with Christ, we're no longer under the power or dominion of death. We're no longer under the dominion of the power of sin. The Christian has been raised because of Christ to new life in Jesus Christ. And the Christian has been made to die to the law. So the Christian means, to being a Christian means you've, gone under, you've undergone a profound change. You have an entirely new life. You need to realize that because that's a great freedom. You don't have to be who you once were. Why? Because you're not who you once were. Right? Amen? You're not who you once were. I, I've said it a hundred times in, in Romans 6. Stop going back to the grave. Stop digging up the old man. Stop putting them on. Why would you put on that foul corpse of corruption? You have an entirely new life in Christ by the mercy of God, by the regenerating kindness of God. And to understand that you have a new life, it has to be understood in the concept or in terms of death and then rising from the dead, because that's what verse 4 says. It says death and rising from the dead. The second truth about the Christian is he's somebody who's entered into a completely new relationship. A Christian is somebody who's entered into a completely new relationship. He has a new relationship to the law, and now he has a new relationship to God. A new relationship to the law, a new relationship to God. Therefore, my brethren, verse 4 of chapter 7, you are also made to die to the law. Remember chapter 6, verse 14? Sin shall not be master over you, for you're not under law, under the law, but under grace. So what does it mean? Again, we were made to die. Heirs passive. Point in time in past history, those who are Christians, who are Christians experienced a complete, final, 
death to the law. Again, it's passive. You didn't do it for yourself. God did it for you. God put you to death by a divine act in response to your faith in Christ. So what does that mean? What does it mean to have experienced a complete final death to the law? Does it mean that a Christian can do absolutely anything that they want to do? Of course, that's not true because that's antinomianism. Right? The, the complete opposite of salvation by grace, right? Grace is to make us holy, not more sinful. Not to encourage more sin. Does it mean that a Christian uh, has experienced a complete death, final death of the law? Does that mean that a Christian can do uh, anything they want? No. Does that mean that a Christian should have nothing to do with the law? Have no concern with the law? Just completely reject it in total? Well, no, that's not true either uh, because Romans uh, seven twelve, Paul says the law is holy, the commandment is holy, right, and good. Right? Uh, Romans 7, 7 is the law of sin. He says, may it never be. On the contrary, I would never have come to know sin except through the law. I would not have come to know about covenant. The law said you should not covenant. Right? Because the law defines a sin. So again, Paul says six fourteen, sin shall not be master over you. You're not under law, but under grace. So no longer under the law means the Christian is no longer in a position where he or she is trying to justify themselves before God by keeping the law. A Christian is not trying to make themselves able or fit or, um, I guess, uh, fit, I can't think of another word, to stand before God in his holiness, right? You say, well, we don't do that. You teach us all the time we can't do that. Well, listen, we do it all the time. My goodness. Right? Do Christians really try to justify themselves by their own efforts? And again, all the time. Even though we might not realize it. I know I've used the example with you before, but it's helpful. Come to the end of the day. You're tired. You want to lay your head down, but you want to pray before you fall asleep. So what do you do? You stop and you think about, about your day. You look over your day. You say to yourself, well, you know what? I had a lot of thoughts that I allowed to... Uh, not just come and go, but I allowed them to take root in my mind. I thought about those and a lot of wicked thoughts from my heart. Think about my words. Boy, there's a lot of wicked words that came from my mouth. My mind, oof. Glad you can't see what's in my mind because there's a lot of things that weren't said on things above, but too, far too many things that were carnal, that were said on the things of this world. And to be honest with you, my anger got the best of me. I was kind of short with the wife, kind of short with my children, and then... Uh, with my body, the actions of my body have not been pleasing to the Lord. So I'm come to, well, I want to pray at the end of the day. I, I look back at my day and I go, man, it's been a bad day. So here's the question. Do you still come? Do you still bow your head in prayer and come to the Lord and come into his presence? Or do you say, look, I'm not good enough to come into his presence and then not pray? Again, if you don't come, then you're trusting in your own righteousness and your own ability to keep the law for your right standing before God. When the truth is nobody obeys the law perfectly because what God's holiness demands is perfection. And when you try to justify yourself before God by what you do and your ability to obey the law, then you're going to have to, again, keep the entirety of the law, which, again, no one can do. Ecclesiastes 7.20 Indeed, there's not a righteous man on the earth who continually does good who never sins, Romans 3 and 10, there's no one righteous, not even one, James 2 and 10, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point becomes guilty of all. No man is perfect, the entire race is under the curse and condemnation of the law, all the law does is bring condemnation, nobody can abide by everything written in the book of the law, so perfection, which God demands, means that man doesn't have it in his own effort because God demands perfection and holiness and man doesn't have it. The glory of the gospel, on the other hand, is that we are no longer under the law. We're no longer under that position. Because we have a new life. Right? And the Christian is not like the non-Christian. The Christian is not under law, but under what? Grace. My dear friends, when you look at your day and see how bad you've been, you better run. Not just come. You better run into the presence of God because he's your only hope. Right? Jesus Christ is our only hope. Standing under unmerited grace, under the unmerited kindness of God, it is our only position. So the Christian looks to another always. Justification, our ultimate standing before God, in sanctification, we still look to Christ for our position before God. Jesus Christ the righteous, Jesus Christ who is our righteousness. Romans 10 and 4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. 
Galatians 3 and 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Why would I ever want to run back under the condemnation of the law and put myself under a curse when Christ, excuse me, has become a curse for us? Right? Why would I want to go anywhere else if Christ is the end of the law for righteousness? What's wrong with my brain that looks back to me that says, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it, you can't just try harder? tell you what, I'll save you the three times. You can do it, you can do it, you can do it, you can't. No, you can't. You can't, I can't. Stop doing it. Stop trying. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. Right? We, you, were made to die to the law. Meaning that you have been freed from the power of the law, having endured its curse and satisfied its demands by your effort? No. In and through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the text says, right? If any, therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that you might bear fruit for God, right? You've been joined with Christ. To the body of Christ, he's the one who's done it. So the Christian is somebody who's undergone a profound change. The Christian is a person who has an entirely new life. The Christian is somebody who has an entirely new relationship to the law. He's no longer under the condemnation of the law. He's under grace. Therefore, a Christian is somebody who has a new relationship to God. A Christian is somebody who has a new relationship to God. A Christian is no longer an enemy of God. A Christian, again, is no longer under condemnation. A Christian has peace with God. A Christian is justified by Christ's blood. A Christian is saved from the wrath to come through the person of Jesus Christ. A Christian is reconciled to God. Again, through the death of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, I want you to write this down. Jesus Christ is everything. He's the answer. A Christian is no longer a child of wrath, as the rest, as it says in Ephesians 2. A, child, a Christian is no longer a son of rebellion. A Christian no longer lives under sin and under Satan. A Christian is no longer a slave of sin. But a Christian has been born again, born from above, dead, to the old man, dead to the law, dead to his former life, now united with Christ, risen with Christ, alive to God in Christ. Therefore, the Christian has a new life, a completely new life. One raised, resurrected from the dead, one who's been regenerated, again, given new life by the power of God, risen with the person of Jesus Christ. A Christian has a new relationship to the law, a new relationship to God. Again, the relationship with the Christian is no longer based on what he does or doesn't do. Resulting, again, if you put yourself in that position, I guarantee you, if it's based on what you do or don't do, it's only going to be condemnation. Because nobody does it perfectly. The Christian has been completely changed, new life, no longer under the law, stands firmly in relationship to God by God's unmerited kindness and God's grace. That, my friends, is good news. That's good news. There's a third truth about the Christian life. The Christian has an entirely new purpose. A new purpose in life. New life, new relationship, new purpose. Therefore, my brethren, you're also made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead. Here it is, in order that, that's the purpose, that you might bear fruit for God. Right? Well, it's in there. We're not going to go there tonight because you all got the bobblehead stuff going I know it's a meaty chapter. It's worth slugging it out. Okay? Again, the greatest compliment I ever got in this church is I understand you by Thursday. Right? And so I expect you to go and listen to it again. Pick up your Bible. Go verse by verse. Look what it says. Uh, again, all of chapter 6, I kept saying, look, it's the emancipation of the Christian. And it really is true. Not only has Christ freed us from sin and given us new life. But Christ himself is that new life. We don't have to struggle to work it out. How many of us struggle? How many of us say, look, the Christian life is so difficult. I can't do it. Good. Now you're starting to get smarter. Because you can't. He can. He is the one who provides us that life. All our attention be, should be focused above where Christ is at the right hand of God and other things below. Right? Not on you, not on me, not on our efforts on him, the person of Jesus Christ. He's everything. 
And again, you get to the end of the chapter, Paul says, look, I got this great struggle going back and forth between I want to obey and I don't obey. And again, the answer to the problem of his life is Jesus Christ. He points himself back to Christ as the answer to his flesh. And then the great statement of probably all statements, I don't know, every statement I read in the New Testament seems to be my favorite statement in the New Testament, but Romans 8, chapter 1 says, there is now what? Therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You've got to realize who you are. Right? You've got to realize who you are in Christ. Our Father and our God, we're thankful for this look in uh, to Romans 7, just kind of uh, starting into it. I do pray it's helpful. And I do pray that you would give uh, clarity and understanding as we stop and think and consider and read and just see the great riches of your grace that Paul speaks about in that chapter. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for indwelling us with the person of the Holy Spirit that allows us to live these new lives that you've given to us. And thank you so much for Christ. He is our only hope. May we encourage each other's hearts by pointing to him and to you continually. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.